Welcome to Catholic Light. Join me, Becca Doherty, each week as we shed a little light while keeping the conversation light. Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Catholic Light. When we think of the saints, we think of greatness and often of big heroic acts. So for example, St. Jean-Marie Vianney, also known as the Curé of Ars, he would hear confessions for hours and hours each day. Padre Pio, likewise, apparently heard hours and hours worth of confession. He apparently also had the gift of being able to read hearts. So people would come into the confessional, confess, and then he would say, mm, and how about that other sin you're not confessing? Or what about this sin? And people would say, oh my gosh, you're right. I'm so sorry for X, Y, and Z. He also had the stigmata. Uh, people believed that he bilocated. So one person would testify they saw Padre Pio in this location on this day at this time, and another person halfway across the world would say the exact same thing, same day, same time, they saw Padre Pio. St. Joan of Arc led armies uh, across France and ultimately was burned at the stake for her love of Jesus Christ. St. Gianna Bratamola, she was a doctor, a wife, a mother, who ultimately sacrificed her life for her unborn child. Pope John Paul II, or Saint John Paul the Great, as many refer to him as, in addition to forgiving his would-be assassin, so the, the gentleman who tried to assassinate him, uh, GP2 later heard his confession, forgave him. In addition to that incredibly beautiful and heroic act, Pope John Paul II was also super talented in a number of different ways. So he was fluent in anywhere from eight to 11 uh, languages, depending on what source you check, you might find a different number, but um, somewhere between eight and 11 languages, he spoke fluently. And then he was able to converse in a number of other languages. He traveled the world, uh, helped end communism in Eastern Europe, and then he was a playwright an actor, an avid outdoorsman. It's easy to think, first of all, I'm not made to be a saint, or if so, I'm not made to be a great or glamorous one. That first part is not true. We are all called to be saints. So each and every one of us is called to be a saint. The word saint comes from the Latin root sanctus, which means holy. And the Hebrew root for holy, or the Hebrew word for holy, is kadash, which means to be set apart. So we live lives that are holy or set apart, which continues to sanctify us, to make us holy, make us more set apart, so that God willing, we'll be in heaven one day. Most of us won't be saints officially canonized by the church and known to many, but hopefully we'll all be in heaven one day. And a famous saint is just as good as an unknown saint because both get to enjoy the beatific vision for all of eternity. So let's say uh, there's the, the cute little old faithful church lady okay, who becomes a saint after years and years of having attended daily mass, of having prayed the rosary each day for the conversion of sinners and the salvation of souls, and of having faithfully cared for her sick husband the last few years of his life, feeding him, bathing him, answering the same questions over and over again as he lost more and more of his memory. 
she's a saint just as much as Joan of Arc is. And once they're in heaven, I imagine, they don't care about the specific circumstances, however heroic and theme-inducing or quiet and hidden they were, that led to their sanctification and ultimately their arrival in heaven. In the words of St. Paul, they both fought the good fight and ran the race of each of their particular circumstances, and they each won. How awesome and different are the lives of the different members of the body of Christ. Again, we can look to St. Paul when he talks about the body of Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He says, Now the body is not a single part, but many. If a foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it does not for this reason belong any less to the body. Or if an ear should say, Because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it does not for this reason belong any less to the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God placed the parts, each one of them, in the body as he intended. If they were all one part, where would the body be? But as it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Now you are Christ's body, and individually parts of it. Some people God has designated in the church to be first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then mighty deeds, then gifts of healing, assistance, administration, and varieties of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers? Do all work mighty deeds? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? Strive eagerly for the greatest spiritual gifts. I was with a group of friends one time, and uh, as we were hanging out, one friend said, what's your favorite body part, or what's the favorite part of your body? Without skipping a beat, I said, my thumbs. I just think they're so cute, and they work really well, and they're often underrated, but can you imagine if you didn't have thumbs? Well, my friend could not get over how funny and kind of weirdly charming it was. So first, I am weird. I'm strange. Uh, But in a a funny twist of events, it just so happened that I just looked down at my thumbs the day prior when I was praying and thanked Jesus for them. When you think of the parts of the body, eyes are more beautiful than thumbs. Biceps are stronger. Feet are more sturdy. While not as beautiful or strong or sturdy as other body parts, thumbs are an integral part to the functioning of the body they'd be sorely missed if they were not there. In an analogous way, we are each members of the body of Christ. Some play more glamorous, more powerful, more, let's say, beautiful, strong, sturdy roles. But each role is integral to the functioning of the whole. And as St. Paul goes on to say in this passage about the body of Christ, Indeed, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are all the more necessary. And those parts of the body that we consider less honorable, we surround with greater honor. And our less presentable parts are treated with greater propriety. Whereas our more presentable parts do not need this. But God has so constructed the body as to give greater honor to a part that is without it, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the parts may have the same concern for one another. If one part suffers, all the parts suffer with it. If one part is honored, All the parts share its joy. So, according to St. Paul, 
It's not the big, strong body parts that have pride of place. It's actually the weak parts that are, quote unquote, all the more necessary and are surrounded with greater honor and are treated with greater propriety. Jesus says, the last shall be first. And he says, the one who is least among all of you is the one who is the greatest. The way of the world is flipped on its head. Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, the greatly hoped-for Savior and King, who would deliver his people from bondage, from oppression, from suffering. And he fulfilled each and every one of those hopes and dreams and prayers. But he accomplished this in a very unexpected, upside-down way. So first, he's born a little baby in a stinky little manger because there wasn't even one room for him at the inn. Then he lives most of his life in a very quiet, humble, hidden, mundane way, such that scripture records a couple of episodes, for example, the presentation of Jesus in the temple and then the finding of Jesus in the temple. But then it simply says, quote unquote, he grew in wisdom, age, and grace. Then the last three years of his life, he explodes onto the scene during his public ministry and then ultimately his passion death, resurrection, and ascension. So those last three years out of his 33 years on earth are filled with parables, miracles, preaching, teaching, and then ultimately his suffering and death. That looks like it's it, but we know it's not. So this is all very different from what the chosen people expected and anticipated for centuries and centuries. It's also very different from what we typically remember and on what we typically focus. So when we think of the life of Jesus Christ, many of us think of the parables, the miracles, the preaching, the teaching. For example, his Sermon on the Mount, his raising of Lazarus from the dead, the parable of the prodigal son, healing the blind, the lame, the deaf, the mute. But it's interesting that only three out of 33 years of his life, so roughly 10%, are that public ministry, are that explosion onto the public scene. The rest, so about 30 years, are quiet, humble, and hidden. They're also very good. So they're quiet, they're humble, they're hidden, they're very good as well. The second person of the Trinity stepped into our human timeline, and the majority of the time he spent on earth was lived in this quiet, humble, hidden way. Because we're a utilitarian, kind of productivity-driven culture, we often think of periods of quiet, of rest, of leisure, as times of quote-unquote storing up for the main event. So in the minds of many, including myself, and I think I don't even realize this uh, consciously much of the time, we think of rest as really preparing us for more work. So the point of resting or the, the point of those quiet, humble, hidden moments of life is really just to regenerate us so we can get back on the scene and, and do some good work. So we rest so we can work harder or work more effectively. But that's not always and maybe should rarely be the case. That quiet, humble, hidden life of Jesus and those quiet, humble, hidden moments of our lives are good in and of themselves. So they're effective and transformative in and of themselves. Today's reading selection includes paragraphs 502 through 534, 
And paragraphs 514, 531, and 533 address this quiet, humble, hidden life of Jesus Christ. Paragraph 514 says, Many things about Jesus of interest to human curiosity do not figure in the Gospels. Almost nothing is said about his hidden life at Nazareth, and even a great part of his public life is not recounted. What is written in the Gospels was set down there so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Paragraphs 531 and 533 go on to say, During the greater part of his life, Jesus shared the condition of the vast majority of human beings, a daily life spent without evident greatness, a life of manual labor. His religious life was that of a Jew obedient to the law of God, a life in the community. From this whole period, it is revealed to us that Jesus was obedient to his parents and that he increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. The hidden life at Nazareth allows everyone to enter into fellowship with Jesus by the most ordinary events of daily life. The home of Nazareth Nazareth is the school where we begin to understand the life of Jesus, the school of the gospel. First, then, a lesson of silence. May esteem for silence, that admirable and indispensable condition of mind, revive in us, A lesson on family life. May Nazareth teach us what family life is, its communion of love, its austere and simple beauty, and its sacred and inviolable character. A lesson of work. Nazareth, home of the carpenter's son, in you I would choose to understand and proclaim the severe and redeeming law of human work. To conclude, I want to greet all the workers of the world, holding up to them their great pattern, their brother who is God. This was an address given by, or taken from an address given by Pope Paul VI at Nazareth in 1964. So a lot of great work is accomplished during those 30 quiet, humble, hidden years, and this is instructive for us. Some might be called to lead great armies, like Joan of Arc, and others to speak multiple languages, like Pope John Paul II. I mentioned a a few episodes ago that uh, last month I went to visit my brother over in Europe who's studying for a PhD in Europe, and we traveled, a friend and I traveled with him first in France and then in Spain. Well, he is very adept at languages. So we're in France. He's he's conversing fluently. He's joking in French. You know, the locals are just laughing, eating it up. We then take a brief plane ride over to Spain. And suddenly he's conversing fluently in Spanish. He's joking in Spanish. Again, the locals are just laughing and eating it up. My friend turns to me and says, he is incredible, really incredible. He's just so adept at these languages. But for many of us, it will be through not leading great armies or necessarily necessarily being fluent in many languages and traveling the world like Pope John Paul II did. For many of us, it will be through faithfulness to the daily mundane tasks of our quiet, hidden, humble lives, which is both difficult and awesome. In fact, it's saint-making. I used to say to a friend who also had small children at the time, Emily, we're striving to become saints in heaven one day by changing one dirty diaper at a time, step by step. If it was good enough for the blessed mother, it's good enough for me. So maybe I think this because I live a quiet little life, but I imagine the humility and hiddenness of it is all the more beautiful because that's what God himself did. 
So 30 quiet years in Nazareth, saying his prayers, learning carpentry, loving and being loved by his parents. Sanctity, being made holy, being set apart, becoming a saint in heaven one day, is often achieved through faithfulness to perseverance in the simple, often hidden tasks of life. So the teacher who answers patiently for the thousandth time, what's the date today? The spouse who cares for a sick wife day in and day out for years. The parent who rocks a baby to sleep in the middle of the night. I think of this this wonderful couple from my home parish where a husband and wife duo, she has led the RCIA program at our parish for almost 30 years, while he has taught sixth grade CCD, preparing kids to receive confirmation, again for almost 30 years. I imagine each of them receiving the same questions, the same complaints, uh, helping people confront the same conundrums year after year after year, just patiently faithfully, perseveringly, and being made holy, being made saints through their faithfulness to those ministries. These are the paths of sanctity, of holiness, of sainthood, and it's there for each and every one of us. This week, I invite you to consider one daily activity that before you embark on it, pause and ask God to help you offer it up to him as a prayer, as a way of making you and those around you saints. I had a professor in college who used to say, let's make our desks into altars and offer ourselves up to God. Let's make our desks into altars and offer ourselves up to God. In other words, every time we sit down to listen to a lecture, read a book, jot down notes, write a paper, prepare for an exam for this particular class, let's offer it up to God as a loving sacrifice, working faithfully, patiently, perseveringly to do the work that he has set before us. Whether it's changing a diaper or wiping the nose of a small child, whether it's persevering in your studies or submitting your timesheet at work, let's offer it up to God in imitation of his life in Nazareth as a quiet, humble, hidden act of love, and let's become saints together. We'll take a brief break, and then we'll return to read our catechism selection for the week. Thanks for sticking around. You are listening to Catholic Light. Thank you for joining me each week as we read through the Catechism of the Catholic Church and discuss some of its beautiful teachings. Welcome back. We'll now read Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraphs 502 through 534. Mary's virginal motherhood in God's plan. The eyes of faith can discover in the context of the whole of Revelation the mysterious reasons why God in his saving plan wanted his son to be born of a virgin. These reasons touch both on the person of Christ and his redemptive mission, and on the welcome Mary gave that mission on behalf of all men. Mary's virginity manifests God's absolute initiative in the incarnation. Jesus has only God as Father. He was never estranged from the Father because of the human nature which he assumed. He is naturally Son of the Father as to his divinity, and naturally Son of his Mother as to his humanity, but properly Son of the Father in both natures. Jesus is conceived by the Holy Spirit in the Virgin Mary's womb, because he is the new Adam, who inaugurates the new creation. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. 
From his conception, Christ's humanity is filled with the Holy Spirit, for God gives him the Spirit without measure. From his fullness, as the head of redeemed humanity, we have all received grace upon grace. By his virginal conception, Jesus, the new Adam, ushers in the new birth of children adopted in the Holy Spirit through faith. How can this be? Participation in the divine life arises not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The acceptance of this life is virginal because it is entirely the Spirit's gift to man. The spousal character of the human vocation in relation to God is fulfilled perfectly in Mary's virginal motherhood. Mary is a virgin because her virginity is the sign of her faith, unadulterated by any doubt, and of her undivided gift of herself to God's will. It is her faith that enables her to become the mother of the Savior. Mary is more blessed because she embraces faith in Christ than because she conceives the flesh of Christ. At once virgin and mother, Mary is the symbol and the most perfect realization of the church. The church indeed, by receiving the word of God in faith, becomes herself a mother. By preaching and baptism, she brings forth sons who are conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of God to a new and immortal life. She herself is a virgin who keeps in its entirety and purity the faith she pledged to her spouse. In brief, from among the descendants of Eve, God chose the Virgin Mary to be the mother of his son. Full of grace, Mary is the most excellent fruit of redemption. From the first instant of her conception, she was totally preserved from the stain of original sin, and she remained pure from all personal sin throughout her life. Mary is truly mother of God, since she is the mother of the eternal Son of God made man, who is God himself. Mary remained a virgin in conceiving her son, a virgin in giving birth to him, a virgin in carrying him, a virgin in nursing him at her breast, always a virgin. With her whole being, she is the handmaid of the Lord. The Virgin Mary cooperated through free faith and obedience in human salvation. She uttered her yes in the name of all human nature. By her obedience, she became the new Eve, mother of the living. Paragraph 3, The Mysteries of Christ's Life Concerning Christ's life, the Creed speaks only about the mysteries of the Incarnation, his conception and birth, and Paschal Mystery, his passion, crucifixion, death, burial, descent into hell, resurrection, and ascension. It says nothing explicitly about the mysteries of Jesus' hidden or public life, but the articles of faith concerning his Incarnation and Passover do shed light on the whole of his earthly life. All that Jesus did and taught from the beginning until the day when he was taken up to heaven is to be seen in the light of the mysteries of Christmas and Easter. According to circumstances, catechesis will make use of all the richness of the mysteries of Jesus. Here it is enough merely to indicate some elements common to all the mysteries of Christ's life. In order then to sketch the principal mysteries of Jesus' hidden and public life. Christ's whole life is a mystery. Many things about Jesus of interest to human curiosity do not figure in the Gospels. Almost nothing is said about his hidden life at Nazareth, and even a great part of his public life is not recounted. What is written in the Gospels was set down there so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. The Gospels were written by men who were among the first to have the faith and wanted to share it with others. Having known in faith who Jesus is, they could see and make others see the traces of his mystery in all his earthly life. From the swaddling clothes of his birth to the vinegar of his passion and the shroud of his resurrection, everything in Jesus' life was a sign of his mystery. 
His deeds, miracles, and words all revealed that in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. His humanity appeared as sacrament, that is, the sign and instrument of his divinity and of the salvation he brings. What was visible in his earthly life leads to the invisible mystery of his divine sonship and redemptive mission. Characteristics common to Jesus' mysteries. Christ's whole earthly life, his words and deeds, his silences and sufferings, indeed his manner of being and speaking, is revelation of the Father. Jesus can say, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And the Father can say, this is my Son, my chosen, listen to him. Because our Lord became man in order to do his Father's will, even the least characteristics of his mysteries manifest God's love among us. Christ's whole life is a mystery of redemption. Redemption comes to us above all through the blood of his cross. But this mystery is at work throughout Christ's entire life. Already in his incarnation, through which by becoming poor, he enriches us with his poverty. In his hidden life, which by his submission atones for our disobedience. In his word, which purifies its hearers. In his healings and exorcisms, by which he took our infirmities and bore our diseases. And in his resurrection, by which he justifies us. Christ's whole life is a mystery of recapitulation. All Jesus did, said, and suffered had for its aim restoring fallen man to his original vocation. When Christ became incarnate and was made man, he recapitulated in himself the long history of mankind and procured for us a shortcut to salvation, so that what we had lost in Adam, that is, being in the image and likeness of God, we might recover in Christ Jesus. For this reason, Christ experienced all the stages of life, thereby giving communion with God to all men. Our communion in the mysteries of Jesus. All Christ's riches are for every individual and are everybody's property. Christ did not live his life for himself, but for us, from his incarnation, for us men and for our salvation, to his death, for our sins, and resurrection for our justification. He is still our advocate with the Father, who always lives to make intercession for us. He remains ever in the presence of God on our behalf, bringing before him all that he lived and suffered for us. In all of his life, Jesus presents himself as our model. He is the perfect man who invites us to become his disciples and follow him. In humbling himself, he has given us an example to imitate. Through his prayer, he draws us to pray, and by his poverty, he calls us to accept freely the privation and persecutions that may come our way. Christ enables us to live in him all that he himself lived, and he lives it in us. By his incarnation, he, the Son of God, has in a certain way united himself with each man. We are called only to become one with him, for he enables us as the members of his body to share in what he lived for us in his flesh as our model. We must continue to accomplish in ourselves the stages of Jesus' life and his mysteries, and often to beg him to perfect and realize them in us and in his whole church. For it is the plan of the Son of God to make us and the whole church partake in his mysteries and to extend them to and continue them in us and in his whole church. This is his plan for fulfilling his mysteries in us. The Mysteries of Jesus' Infancy and Hidden Life The Preparations The coming of God's Son to earth is an event of such immensity that God willed to prepare for it over centuries. He makes everything converge on Christ— all the rituals and sacrifices, figures and symbols of the first covenant. He announces him through the mouths of the prophets who succeeded one another in Israel. 
Moreover, he awakens in the hearts of the pagans a dim expectation of this coming. St. John the Baptist is the Lord's immediate precursor or forerunner sent to prepare his way. Prophet of the Most High, John surpasses all the prophets of whom he is the last. He inaugurates the gospel already from his mother's womb, welcomes the coming of Christ, and rejoices in being the friend of the bridegroom, whom he points out as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Going before Jesus in the Spirit and power of Elijah, John bears witness to Christ in his preaching, by his baptism of conversion, and through his martyrdom. When the church celebrates the liturgy of Advent each year, she makes present this ancient expectancy of the Messiah. For by sharing in the long preparation for the Savior's first coming, the faithful renew their ardent desire for his second coming. By celebrating the precursor's birth and martyrdom, the church unites herself to his desire. He must increase, but I must decrease. The Christmas Mystery Jesus was born in a humble stable into a poor family. Simple shepherds were the first witnesses to this event. In this poverty, heaven's glory was made manifest. The church never tires of singing the glory of this night. The virgin today brings into the world the eternal, and the earth offers a cave to the inaccessible. The angels and shepherds praise him, and the magi advance with the star. For you are born for us, little child, God eternal. To become a child in relation to God is the condition for entering the kingdom. For this, we must humble ourselves and become little. Even more, to become children of God, we must be born from above or born of God. Only when Christ is formed in us will the mystery of Christmas be fulfilled in us. Christmas is the mystery of this marvelous exchange. O marvelous exchange, man's creator has become man, born of the virgin. We have been made sharers in the divinity of Christ, who humbled himself to share our humanity. The Mysteries of Jesus' Infancy Jesus' circumcision on the eighth day after his birth is the sign of his incorporation into Abraham's descendants, into the people of the covenant. It is the sign of his submission to the law and his deputation to Israel's worship, in which he will participate throughout his life. This sign prefigures that circumcision of Christ, which is baptism. The Epiphany is the manifestation of Jesus as Messiah of Israel, Son of God and Savior of the world. The great feast of Epiphany celebrates the adoration of Jesus by the wise men, the Magi, from the east, together with his baptism in the Jordan and the wedding feast at Cana in Galilee. In the Magi, representatives of the neighboring pagan religions, the gospel sees the first fruits of the nations who welcome the good news of salvation through the Incarnation. The Magi's coming to Jerusalem in order to pay homage to the King of the Jews shows that they seek in Israel, in the messianic light of the Star of David, the one who will be king of the nations. Their coming means that pagans can discover Jesus and worship him as Son of God and Savior of the world only by turning toward the Jews and receiving from them the messianic promise as contained in the Old Testament. The Epiphany shows that the full number of the nations now takes its place in the family of the patriarchs and acquires Israelitica dignitas, are made worthy of the heritage of Israel. The presentation of Jesus in the temple shows him to be the firstborn son who belongs to the Lord. With Simeon and Anna, all Israel awaits its encounter with the Savior, the name given to this event in the Byzantine tradition. Jesus is recognized as the long-expected Messiah, the light to the nations and the glory of Israel, but also a sign that is spoken against. The sword of sorrow predicted for Mary announces Christ's perfect and unique oblation on the cross, 
that will impart the salvation God had prepared in the presence of all peoples. The flight into Egypt and the massacre of the innocents make manifest the opposition of darkness to the light. He came to his own home, and his own people received him not. Christ's whole life was lived under the sign of persecution. His own share it with him. Jesus' departure from Egypt recalls the Exodus and presents him as the definitive liberator of God's people. The Mysteries of Jesus' Hidden Life During the greater part of his life, Jesus shared the condition of the vast majority of human beings, a daily life spent without evident greatness, a life of manual labor. His religious life was that of a Jew obedient to the law of God, a life in the community. From this whole period, it is revealed to us that Jesus was obedient to his parents and that he increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus' obedience to his mother and legal father fulfills the fourth commandment perfectly and was the temporal image of his filial obedience to his father in heaven. The everyday obedience of Jesus to Joseph and Mary both announced and anticipated the obedience of Holy Thursday. Not my will. The obedience of Christ in the daily routine of his hidden life was already inaugurating his work of restoring what the disobedience of Adam had destroyed. The hidden life at Nazareth allows everyone to enter into fellowship with Jesus by the most ordinary events of daily life. The home of Nazareth is the school where we begin to understand the life of Jesus, the school of the first gospel. First, then, a lesson of silence. The esteem for silence, that admirable and indispensable condition of mind, revive in us a lesson on family life. May Nazareth teach us what family life is, its communion of love, its austere and simple beauty, and its sacred and inviolable character. A lesson of work. Nazareth, home of the carpenter's son, in you I would choose to understand and proclaim the severe and redeeming law of human work. To conclude, I want to greet all the workers of the world, holding up to them their great pattern, their brother who is God. The finding of Jesus in the temple is the only event that breaks the silence of the Gospels about the hidden years of Jesus. Here, Jesus lets us catch a glimpse of the mystery of his total consecration to a mission that flows from his divine sonship. Did you not know that I must be about my father's work? Mary and Joseph did not understand these words, but they accepted them in faith. Mary kept all these things in her heart. During the years, Jesus remained hidden in the silence of an ordinary life. This brings us to the end of our episode. Thanks for joining me, and be sure to connect with me on Instagram at Catholic Light Podcast. This week, consider sharing in the comments section what's helping to sanctify you in this season of life. Please pray for me as I'll be praying for you, and I'll see you next week. In the meantime, God bless you. Thanks for joining me this week on Catholic Light. Be sure to like, subscribe, and share this podcast with your family and your friends, and connect with me through Facebook and Instagram. I'll see you next week, and in the meantime, God bless you.